Get ready to step into scripture with Matt and Tina. Hey everyone, welcome to season four, episode seven in the Step Into Scripture podcast. My name is Tina Wilson. I'm the author of Step Into Scripture, the book that goes along with this podcast. Thrilled to have my husband, Matt, co-hosting with me this season. I'm Matt Wilson. I'm Tina's husband and a huge advocate for Step Into Scripture. Thank you, Matt. So the premise behind this book is we want to encourage listeners and viewers to read the entire Bible all the way through. We hope that you've made that commitment in the year 2024. And if you did, and if you started at the beginning of the year with us, we are working week by week through the scriptures in chronological order. We are on six weeks of reading now for this episode. So if you're reading along with us, you would have read days 36 to 42, which is Exodus 19 through 38. And that's what we're going to be unpacking in today's episode, which we are calling Exodus Typology. So last week we looked at how Moses was a shadow of Jesus. And we're going to see that spelled out a lot more clearly as we go forward in our reading and we come to the book Deuteronomy. But today we're going to look at how some of the events of the Exodus that we've been reading about the journey of the Israelites coming out of captivity, going to Mount Sinai, how these are also shadows shadows that point to salvation for all of us, not just from the nation of Israel who was being brought out of captivity at that time. So let's just provide a definition to start us off of typology. Typology is a literary device in which a person, event, or institution in the Old Testament is understood to correspond with a person, event, or institution in the New Testament. And really, that's what the Step Into Scripture book does primarily, is draw these connections between books and testaments in the Bible. So as an example, last week we saw that Moses was a type of prophet and leader in Israel who was ultimately fulfilled in Christ who was the anti-type. In the same way, uh, at the beginning of our reading, you can note that Adam, because he was the first head of humanity, is a type, while Jesus is the second, the anti-type. And then in the next season of this podcast, which is called Signpost, we'll see how King David was also a type of leader who was fulfilled in Christ. So you have these types in the Old Testament that correspond with anti-types in the New Testament. And today we're going to look at three specific types that we're pulling from the events we've read this week in Exodus. Those three are the plague of darkness, the Passover, and the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Tina, one of the things I love as we dig into this is I love how when you read the Bible, you see something and you're kind of like, I don't, I don't really get it. Like, I don't understand what that's for. It just seems miraculous. It seems, seems like some great event of God showing himself. And one of the mistakes we make is we think the Bible is filled with just miracles. We think we're, it's filled with just wonders, and, and it is, but they really, they're selective, and they always have a purpose. They always have a picture. So when we look at the plague of darkness that we read about in Egypt, we, we can look at that and just say, okay, God's, God's trying to flex, and we've talked before about how that's representative of the deities of Egypt, but yeah. we also can miss that this is going to be significant again and again through God's Word. And so let's look at the, the plague of darkness, the days of darkness, and Jesus in the grave. All right. So scripture uses darkness as a descriptor of national judgment rendered by God. So this isn't just like God decided he was going to spook people and that there was going to be an eclipse. This was God showing how he stamps his judgment 
Like, you know this is from God because of this. And I love that you point that out because I, I remember just last time there was a major eclipse that was reaching totality here in our area where yeah. we live. <clears throat> People are trying to tie it to all kinds of biblical prophecy when it's not about the event, it's about the picture, the symbol that's involved. And it is always a picture of national judgment in scripture. Yeah. And, you know, we have, we have the, and another piece that's important to this is it wasn't like people in those days, we, we try to picture it like every time there was an eclipse, people um, saw that as a judgment of the gods. Like we try and put that onto ancient people. Right. But we forget these ancient people understood the solar system better than what most people do today. They understood the seasons. They understood the change. They understood when all this would happen. So we're not looking at God using just a regular eclipse. Right. We're looking at something that's outside of the norm that would be significant to the people that were used to observing the heavens. Yes. Right? And so as we dig into it, let's, let's look at the judgment of Pharaoh and, and Egypt. And we see this darkness come about, and it's not just a momentary darkness. Right. It's a lasting darkness. And we see this again and again throughout the Old Testament as we read the major and the minor prophets, and we see this as a picture. We see this as a descriptor, as a pronouncement of God's judgment that's going to come. We're, we're actually going to go through this later in a section called Sounds, right? So let's look at Exodus chapter 10, 21. Let's just back up. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. Now, I don't, I don't care how, how many events historically you go through or how much you try to look at these regular eclipse that will happen on a cycle. You're not seeing a three-day eclipse. Right. Darkness for three days is significant. And feeling darkness is different than it's dark and it's scary. This is a darkness that's lasting. You're feeling the weight of it, right? Yes. And so we saw this last week when we looked at the prophecy of judgment against the Roman Empire in Revelation. This same language, this, this is going to be felt. The effect of this is yes. going to be felt. And we see in Revelation 16, 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. So this is a judgment on the throne of the mm -hmm. beast. And its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony. But then we look at this, even with hell, we see this picture of darkness, eternal darkness, weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth. And we start tying these together, but then we see Jesus as the antitype of this, yes. right? So in John chapter one, verse four, in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then when we read in verse nine, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So we see Jesus as the antitype of this judgment. Yes. And again, judgment is a good thing if it's in our favor. Right. And so this same judgment language of darkness coming from the wrath of God or the judgment of God, or even looking eternally at hell, right? Yeah. But Jesus is coming as the light that sets us free from darkness. Yes. Right? So Matthew 27, 45, we look at the crucifixion of Jesus and it marries these together. Yeah. The light of the world is paying the price for our judgment. Yes. Okay. So from in verse 45, from noon until three in the afternoon, 
That's significant. Again, not like an eclipse where you go buy your eclipse glasses and you go stand out and you watch it come by for a moment. This is a three-hour darkness that come over the whole land. So the judgment representing these three hours of darkness at Jesus' death was the ultimate judgment of sin and death. And I love that it's, we can get into the three days, but I love that in three hours, Christ is able to accomplish this picture of the light overcoming the darkness. For a moment, it seems like the darkness is won. Yeah. For a moment, it seems like, like evil has won, like sin has won, but Christ is going to overcome that. So the judgment represented in these three hours of darkness at, at Jesus' death was the ultimate judgment on sin and death. And here we see the power of Satan broken. Yeah. Um, it's also no accident that at the time of darkness in Egypt was three days. You can't help but love that. Right. Because this judgment that's coming lasts for three days and Jesus died. He, his death lasts for three days. And in his final days in Mark chapter 10, the start with verse 32, it says, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. So I, just in this moment, Jesus is, he's on his way to Jerusalem. The time is near and people are following him and there's something changing in the mood. Something's being felt. Yeah. And so while people are afraid, Jesus doesn't clarify to everybody. He pulls his 12 to the side and he begins to tell them what's going to happen. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Tina, I can't, I can't imagine how many times in my life God has proven himself faithful and true, yet I still find myself doubting when I'm facing the days of darkness. You know? Yeah. And so I, I look at Jesus' disciples and I'm amazed. It, it, my, my, my mind right now looks at this and says, okay, how did, they dis, how did they not believe when he resurrected, when he told them in three days? Yeah. When he told them what would happen and the events happened just as they did. But I look at my own life and I see this fulfillment of how many times God has been clear through his word that he will see us through. And I still find myself facing these moments of uncertainty yeah. and questioning him. And that's why I think it's so beautiful that we constantly can go back to the word and we can see these fulfillments just as he says, and we can, we can restore our faith in that. Yeah, it's incredible. So not only is the darkness itself a type that points us toward a fulfillment in Christ, but the length of the darkness, the yeah. three hours, the three days, these things in the Old Testament, like you said, are not just grand displays of God's power. They are that, and they are literal events that actually occurred, but they're pointing toward such oh, yeah. beautiful truth for I, us. I can't tell you how many times I'm frustrated people rob God's word of his miracles and what they were for, because today we want, we want the miraculous things to happen, but without a purpose. Right, yes. We, we want God to just perform miracles, but not understand that his miracles were always pointing to his, what he was going to accomplish. Right. None of this is parlor tricks. This is yeah. all foreshadowing what was going to be accomplished in Christ, the final word of God. Yeah. So just after that plague, the plague of darkness, plague number nine, the 10th plague, 
that we've read about in Exodus was the death of the firstborn. And so in order to be spared from that plague, scripture tells us that the Israelites had to slaughter a male lamb without defect. They had to paint the blood of the lamb on the door frames of their houses, and then they had to eat the lamb in haste. Now, this is one of those things I think that we read in the Old Testament. And if we're reading scripture for the first time, it throws us off because yeah. this is kind of gross. It's kind of gory. It's Sound, kind of weird. Kind of like circumcision, yeah. right? Like why? What is the purpose in all that? And again, it's a type pointing us toward Christ. So Exodus twelve thirteen says, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So that was the initial instruction given to the Israelites to be spared from this 10th plague, the plague after which they would ultimately be set free from their bondage. We can look at this and we can see where the blood of Jesus covers us today. And we know that's, that's, that's a promise that God has. But in his promissory saying, no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And we're like, well, why do we still suffer when um, we're supposed to be in Christ? And I think what's important to remember is it doesn't mean people they knew weren't going to have the plagues come upon them. Mm -hmm. It means those that wouldn't obey would still have the plagues come upon them. And we're still going to be affected right. by where we are in proximity to people who are living outside of Christ's blessings. Yes. Which means we will still struggle. We will still hurt. We will still be affected by that. But the plagues will not be upon us. Yes. So after this initial experience, what the Israelites had here in Egypt, then there was an ongoing command that they were supposed to continually observe this. So Exodus 12, 26 and 27 says, and when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed and worshiped. So that's the initial event, the type that we see presented in the reading. Nearly 1500 years after that first Passover, at the Exodus, Jesus was now sitting down with his disciples to have his final meal with them before he went to the cross. And here it's the time of the Passover. The timing of Christ's crucifixion is no accident. It's no coincidence. It was orchestrated perfectly by God. And now Jesus reinstitutes this feast, but with a new meaning and under new authority. So the original Passover, it proclaimed a death sentence for the firstborn of Egypt, but it resulted in freedom from bondage for God's people. Well, it also, there's a piece that I think a lot of times we miss in reading is the Egyptians had the opportunity to cover their doorpost as well. And so when we look at that, we, we're like, oh man, God killed the firstborn of Egypt because he was angry at the Egyptians. They were given the same opportunity. But the picture here is because of our rebellion and sin, the firstborn would die. And so we're looking at this is not just a picture of what God did because they refused, but God also is painting the picture of what his son, his firstborn, the firstborn of righteousness will endure because of our sin. Right. And all people have the option to be cleansed, to be covered, to be protected. But our rebellion, our, our, our refusal to submit to the simplicity of God's grace is the thing that brings the pain and the heartache. And God, God led that pain by saying, my son will pay the price so you don't have to. Right. 
right? And that's where our covering today comes from in the anti-type, in the New Testament fulfillment of this, the protection from death and the resulting freedom from bondage comes from the covering of the blood of a perfect lamb. I love it. You got Jesus saying, I will, I will take the death of the firstborn, but I will also be the death of the, the lamb. I will also be the blood that is covering. Jesus is taking every bit of this to be able to give us freedom. So that very first Passover back in Exodus, that inaugurated a new era of freedom where God's people would be freed from bondage and they would enter into a covenant now with him to be his holy and blessed nation. And in the same way, Jesus, as he is sitting with his disciples, reconstituting these elements saying, now the bread is my body and the juice is my blood and I am the new Passover lamb. He is ushering in a new era of freedom and, and here, not just for the nation of Israel, but for Jews and Gentiles. And like you said, anyone who would submit, just like in the days of the Exodus, where we can enter into a new covenant as God's holy and blessed people, where we're redeemed and we're reconciled by the sacrifice of Christ, the perfect lamb. And so here are the words that Jesus himself used to explain this meaning. Matthew 26, 26 through 28. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So in Exodus, they had this bread without yeast, and the reason for that was because they couldn't take time for the bread to rise. They had to eat the meal in haste. Well, now it's no longer about fleeing from the Egyptians in haste like it was in the book of Exodus. Now it's about the sinless body of the Lord because we see in scripture yeast is also used as a metaphor for sin. And unleavened bread must be pierced. Yes, exactly. In order, in order to set. And then the blood of the lamb is no longer about a sign to spare the people from death at the hand of this angel who was passing over Egypt. But now it is a way, an actual avenue into new life. That's now what the blood represents. So participation in this feast is no longer a memorial of the delivery of the old covenant, which is what the Israelites were receiving that's what the Passover inaugurated. Now it's about a remembrance of the sacrifice that inaugurated the new covenant, according to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. So we now take part in this Passover, in this recurring celebration, but we do it when we gather for worship and we eat the bread that represents the body of Christ and we drink the juice that represents the blood of Christ. And what's incredible is that our meal no longer includes a lamb. I have people ask me all the time when they start making this connection, why is there not the roasted lamb? Why do we not have the bitter herbs? Why do we not have the salt? And people kind of get hung up on that and they're like, well, we have the blood and we have the bread, but why do we not have the other pieces? And so I think that's one of the most important things to show people they're not included because they're fulfilled. Well, and here's, listen to 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Again, we have this tie to yeast as representative of sin in scripture and Christ as the Passover lamb, Paul says, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be an unleavened batch as you really are for Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So we don't need a physical lamb because 
Christ is the lamb. That's what we are remembering when we partake in this fulfillment, in this antitype of the Passover meal today in corporate worship and communion. And through his sacrifice, you don't need the salt to remind you of the tears of your time in slavery. You don't need the bitter herbs to remind you of the bitter bondage that you were enduring. And so we see this beautiful fulfillment where Christ is saying, those things have been removed, but I need you to remember the covenant piece. Yes. And that is the body that was broken and the blood that was shed that now removes the bitterness, removes the tears. It's a beautiful picture, and it's something that we should be participating in weekly. That's something here in our home church, Ecclesia, we observe communion here weekly because weekly we want to be proclaiming the death and resurrection of the Lord until Christ comes again. And I would encourage you as you worship with a church, number one, that you are worshiping with a church in the assembly of the Lord's people, and you're worshiping with a church that is partaking in communion every single Sunday. Yeah. And remember, you know, if you're calling it communion, it means to commune. Yeah. And so one of the, one of the saddest things is if you were, if you were in prison somewhere or on an island and you had to find a way to take communion by yourself, that's beautiful. But the goal is to commune, to come together. Why? So that we can proclaim his sacrifice until he comes. Yes. To remind each other, to spur one another on. Now, as we're looking at these types in scripture, I want to just spend a little more time here on the timing of Jesus' death. We already mentioned that was not a coincidence. It wasn't an accident. John 19, 14 and 15 says, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. So here again, we see Jesus who's the fulfillment of this Passover lamb. He's being crucified and it's happening at the exact same time that these Jewish folks would be observing the Passover, what was instituted 1500 years prior. They're walking that out. This is the timing of Jesus' death. And as he's hanging on the cross, he says that he's thirsty. Again, this is not an accident. It's all an antitype fulfilling what we saw in the book of Exodus. And so scripture tells us that they lifted a sponge of wine vinegar to him on a stalk of hyssop. Now at the very first Passover, what we've already talked about, what you read this week, the Israelites, when they were delivered from slavery, here are the instructions that Moses gave from God. Exodus 12, 22, take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on the sides of the door frames. So at the cross now, as Jesus is thirsting, this plant of Passover significance is now reintroduced, lifted up to the lamb who is the firstborn of God, who is being sentenced to death. So all of this is just an amazing fulfillment. And one more piece of this, Moses had commanded the people regarding this Passover lamb in Exodus 12, 46, do not break any of the bones. And when the people saw that Jesus was already dead, rather than breaking his legs, as was the custom in a Roman crucifixion, they instead confirmed his death with a spear that pierced his side and not by breaking his legs. And we read that in John 19, 32 through 34, the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and of water. So All of this, every element of this Passover is a type that is pointing us toward the very specific 
orchestrated divine events of Jesus' death. And just one more we see is that as Jesus is hanging on a cross, he's beneath a sign that declares his title as king. And he didn't look like what the world would have expected of a king, but he was exactly the kind of king that the world needed. So in the book of Revelation, John sees God and he's holding a scroll and John, who is receiving this vision from Christ, he begins to weep because no one is found in all of creation who is worthy to open this scroll so that we can see what it says. And then Revelation 5, 4 through 6 John says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. So here is Christ. His death on the cross as a slaughtered lamb lifted him up to the position of sovereign king who's paid this tremendous sin debt for all the world so that all of us could be delivered from bondage and death has no hold on us anymore. We are freed from that darkness and that judgment. I am blown away at how gracefully you were able to read that and keep your emotions in check. It's difficult. I have a hard time with the book of Revelation. I think so many people read it and they, they go for the creepy factor that they, they miss the beauty of what Revelation is saying there. And I just want to take a second before we move on to say the elegance and the patience by which you make these connections. I feel like the whole time we're going through, I'm having to kind of rein myself in because I'm sitting here thinking, ooh, Psalm 22 would be perfect right here, Isaiah 53. And I just start looking at all the connections that I want to cram into one place, but you are... You are taking your time perfectly through this study and showing the connections as they happen without trying to force them and overwhelm people because they will go through the rest of this book and they will see connection after connection that keeps tying to the perfect timing of Christ's sacrifice. I I have to applaud you in that and now I can move on. Well, that's a great point. Let Let me say this to anyone who's watching or listening. We will miss connections here and and the call here is for everyone to read the Bible for yourself. And I believe that you will start discovering these things. And as you discover them, that's just part of the inspiration of scripture that is going to draw you so deeply into it that's really going to cause you to become addicted to it. Because the more you see how perfectly it's all fulfilled. But there's a cautionary part to this, is you don't force them. Right. And there will be a temptation. You will see stuff. You'll be like, oh, I bet. Trace it out. If it does not line up all the way through, it's, it's not. If you're sitting here and you're forcing it, and I've seen so many people try and make Scripture fit Scripture that doesn't fit. And there's going to be a huge temptation, and there's going to be some amazing moments where you're like, oh, I think this is. And then you realize, mm, no, it wasn't. But that doesn't diminish anything. Keep going. Right. When you find those pieces that weave together perfectly yeah. and you can prove it through the Bible from Old Testament to New Testament and you see what God is doing, it, are, it, is, it is the most confirming moments of the faith. Yeah, right? absolutely. So another one we move to is the giving of the law at Sinai and how that connects to, to Pentecost. So after Jesus' resurrection, he spent 40 days, again, Um, when you read the Bible, it's going to give, if you see a description of the way a person looks or you see a description of a land, it's going to play into uh, their character or or something in their life that's going to be pivotal, right? When you see days and numbers, 
the Bible is not just throwing that out there, significance into the numbers and times that the Bible uses. So after Jesus' resurrection, we, we realize he's resurrected on wave sheaf day where the first fruits are presented before God before the rest of the harvest can be collected. So he spends 40 days teaching his disciples, showing himself to over 500 people, yeah. including his brother. And on the 40th day, he ascends back into heaven. At that time, he told his disciples not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the gift that God had promised, the Holy Spirit. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 4 through 8. And if you, again, one of the most important passages you'll always commit to memory is going to be Matthew 28, um, 18 through. And so I, I love that also at this moment, his disciples believe that some doubt. Yeah. And so it's never completely perfect, right? Yeah. And so during this time, we find out from Acts chapter 1, 12 through 15, that following Jesus' ascension, the believers numbered about 120 people. Now, he showed himself to over 500. Right. But there's about 120 there still connected. And they're all staying in an upstairs room while they're continually joined together in prayer as they follow Jesus' instructions to wait for the gift that he had promised, the Holy Spirit. And it's also important to remember that this is a very dangerous place and a very dangerous time for them to be where Jesus is telling them to wait. Right. So as they're waiting for the Holy Spirit, that's a concept that would have been very foreign for them. Right. Um, Jesus has spoken to his disciples about the Holy Spirit. He has breathed on them. He has promised them. He has, he has commissioned them with the Holy Spirit. But to receive the Holy Spirit, to wait on the Holy Spirit, these things are hard for them. It's not a part of their, their cultural narrative, right? Right. The third person of God and dwelling in people is not a tradition in Jewish teaching. And so there were allusions to him in the Old Testament and to the Hebrew scriptures, but they, they were concealed. They were mysterious, yet their truth was about to be revealed and manifested in what happens next. And I, I think that something important here is that when we only read the New Testament, because we think that's only when the Holy Spirit appears in Scripture, we do a disservice to who He is. Yeah. Because we cannot understand who He is or what He's doing simply by reading about Him and His fulfillment, just like Christ, just like God's will, just like God's plan. If we don't go to the very beginning as we've read through this and see His presence in creation— yeah. See his where he's at in creation. Right. Every introduction of the Holy Spirit is pretty much the same way. Look, he's with water, right? I'm not going to take time on that. I know I'll make you nervous. Let's go back to Exodus. This is the, the Pentecost would be the 50th day. And so on the 50th day after Israel left Egypt, God descended on Mount Sinai and delivered his covenant law to Moses. With Moses receiving the law, the people, he's away. He's been there for so long. And what's amazing is the people start losing faith. They start losing hope. Uh, Moses comes down and he finds them and they're engaging in idol worship, wild celebration. Um, he, he thinks there's war breaking out in the camp. And God's like, no, that's the sound of revelry, celebration. Yes. And so Moses gets angry and he throws the tablets down and he, he breaks them. In this moment... To this point, all of the Israelites were supposed to be a nation of priests. Yes. But in this moment, Moses kind of draws a line in the sand, and he says, who's on the Lord's side? And out of all the Israelites, only one tribe stands up, the Levites. And when they come forward at this command, 
he, he is kind of declaring, who's going to be with me? Who's going to keep this camp pure? And they pulled out their swords. And this is a, a very painful passage. Right. They kill 3,000 men because they chose to separate themselves from the rebellion. Yeah. Because they were willing to obey God, even in something that sounds harsh. Um, they get set aside and they become a whole tribe of priests. Can you imagine the cost of 3,000 people perishing because of a rebellion from the law? And so if we get that weight and then we hold on to it and we look at the New Testament and we see how this reverses. So this, this triumph that turns from Exodus at, at Sinai to Acts 2 during Pentecost, and at this point again to state Pentecost comes from Pente, so Penta. 50 days, right? And so it's the same time frame. It's the same feast celebrating these things, remembering the tragic loss of 3,000. And here this message is preached for the first time that there is redemption, that there is hope, that the Messiah has come, that he's not dead, that he's resurrected, that all people can be brought to him. And the people are cut to their heart and they say, what must we do? You know? And so I look at this moment and I see we're celebrating that God had made a way for us, but we're celebrating with the heavy heart of 3,000 people dying. Right. And so now we're asking, what must we do? Because we know there is a consequence for not following God. How can we separate ourselves from the rebellion? How can we not be with those who crucified Christ? Peter right. said, don't you know that this Christ who you crucified? So we know there's a sin. We know there's a rebellion. How can we not be a part of that? And Peter responds to him, repent acknowledge this, accept this, change this, overcome this. A very dangerous message at this point, but they get they're there for repentance because they're, they're observing the penalty of rebellion, yes. right? And he says, and be baptized, right? So that part, they're there for this, to remember this, but he throws in this piece in the name of Jesus. Yeah. In the name of Jesus Christ. Now that is culturally suicide because this is the most dangerous thing to say at this point. And then he adds, for the forgiveness of your sins. Revolutionary message. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right. And here we're saying Christ is God. And that he, if I am baptized as I came for, if I am repentant as I came for, I can escape this judgment. I can escape this death. I can escape this rebellion. But I can only do it through being immersed in the authority of Christ's name. Right. And then... If that weren't enough, he throws one more piece on. And, <laughs> and so that's not all, Johnny. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, for the people of that day, this is not like being in church and hearing the Holy Spirit, hearing the indwelling or the gift of the Holy Spirit. This was almost a blasphemous statement to them if they did not see all the connections coming together. If right. it were not happening at this time. And so he goes on and he says, this promise Forgiveness of sins, gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for as many as the Lord our God will call. And so now it's tied to a call that we are called to this, that our children are called to this, that our friends and family and all who are far off, Gentiles will be called to this. And so in this moment, everything is coming together of God bringing the whole world back and where we can become a nation of priests again, where we can get out of the rebellion. And so 3,000 died in rebellion and disobedience. And in this moment, this dangerous call, this intimidating call is given at the same time for people later and 3,000 people who believed and accepted this message were baptized. Incredible. 
And so in this moment, we, we find ourselves in this beautiful fulfillment of coming out of the judgment, coming into redemption. So let's look again, Exodus 19, starting with verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. So don't miss that, right? Because we've already talked about the typology of darkness. We're seeing that repeated here. We've talked about the typology of three days. We're seeing that repeated here. And now all of Israel is gathered at Mount Sinai for this culminating moment of receiving the law and these these symbols that we've even seen through the plagues and the deliverance from bondage 50 days later are being revisited. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it, the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. So now let's jump back to the book of Acts and let's look what happened on the day the church began. They were all together in one place, assembled. They're going to hear from God, right? Suddenly the sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Now, we know that God's fire presence is on the mountain. We know that the wind. So let's just take a second and look at this. Because a lot of times people get confused with fire is a good thing. And the judgment language of fire, uh, especially when people try and go into the baptism of fire, um, not a good thing. If we right. look at where John says that, John the Baptist, he says this winnowing fork is in his hand. This is the, the chaff being thrown into the fire, uh, the judgment of being thrown into the lake of fire. And just as a preview, in a future episode, when we come to the book of Ruth, we'll do a little bit deeper dive on what these symbols mean consistently throughout scripture, chaff and winnowing and the fire. Again, like you said, Matt, sometimes we want to pull out these symbols and make oh, yeah. them mean something we they don't. We want a baptism of fire. And I'm telling you, right now. I do you not want to be, it. I do not want to be immersed into the lake of fire. Nope, I know who it. that's for and it's not for me. But as we look at this, we, we have this pneumaia, this breath, this wind, this powerful wind that we see picture and that's like the Holy Spirit. And so we see tongues of fire instead of the mountain God is going to be speaking from fire is now over the people God is going to be speaking from. Yes, They're going to be speaking in the native languages of people, giving the judgment language of God, right? And so as these things come into place, we start seeing this fulfillment of God's no longer just on the mountain. His spirit is no longer just speaking through Moses, but now his spirit is with men and his, his judgment message, his redemption message is going to be coming through men, kind of like a little seal of approval that's over them. And it, we can even bridge these two pieces together from Exodus that we've read this week to Acts 2, which is the fulfillment, by going to a, a passage that's referenced in Acts chapter 2 as Peter is speaking this message to the people, this message of repentance and forgiveness of sins. If you're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, he says to them, all these signs that you're experiencing today, what you just described, what was happening on the day of Pentecost, he says, this is a fulfillment of what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And if yeah. we turn to that passage in Joel, we'll just read it real quick. Joel 2, starting in verse 29, 
He says, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, which is where these events are taking place, there will be deliverance as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So all across scripture, from Exodus to Joel to Acts, we see alignment of what's happening. And all of these types are pointing toward one fulfillment, one antitype, Jesus Christ and the saving work that he did for us. One of, one of the things that amazes me is people see Acts 2 as just a grace redemption moment. So they, they only see salvation being preached. And so they don't understand when they see these signs of blood, fire, billows of smoke, they see these judgment language pieces and they say, well, that must be for the final judgment. That must be for later. But what they don't really realize is if you look at Acts 2, Peter is preaching a very judgment-filled message yes. that presents hope and salvation. This Jesus whom you, you crucified, crucified, yeah, right? You crucified the Son of God. God has made him Lord and Messiah. He is now... There is a judgment there of saying you sinned you were a part of this, and there is judgment in this, but there is hope. And so I, I, I get scared when people take Joel's prophecy or they take these ties and they try and make it um, about a future coming thing. Right. And we, we miss the picture of the gospel messages presented in facing our sin, turning from our sin, and finding salvation from our sin. And so right. we have to be careful not to just present the gospel as always just Jesus loves you, come be saved, and then one day you'll escape where you are escaping now. Right. You are being saved being now. Being saved, that's like right. now, not then, now. And, and just one final thing that we'll point out from this event in Exodus that we read is how amazing that God himself etched his law with his own finger on these stone tablets. But Jeremiah, the prophet, centuries after this event occurred, we'll read about this when we come to, like you said, the section of this study called Sounds, where we look at all the prophetic writings. He pointed forward to a day when God would do a new thing. And I want to read you what he says, Jeremiah 31, 33. God says through Jeremiah, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. Because remember, everything we've seen here in the Passover and the deliverance from Egypt was the inauguration of an old covenant mm -hmm. of what was going to be the agreement between God and people so that he could dwell with them and they could be his blessed and holy nation. But Jeremiah says, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. God mm. himself will write his law on our hearts. And he says, I will be their God and they will be my people. And he is referring here to what you just read in Acts chapter two, when people are cut to the hearts and they are filled with the Holy Spirit so that they and their children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord will call, all can be his children. I love, I love the, the, the fulfillment we see here of his, his law is written in our hearts and our minds, and the Holy Spirit does this. But when we look at the Old Testament, they were supposed to be a nation of priests. Right, they were all, all of supposed Israel. to be priests. They were all going to receive the law. 
They were all going to be the custodians of the law, but the Levites were the ones who were faithful. And so they are stewarding the law for the people. And now we look at 1 Peter 2.9, we see that we are now a nation of priests, yes. a royal priesthood, and we have the law in our hearts. We have the law in our mind, and we get to share this. We get to share this with the world to bring more people into this royal family, this royal priesthood where we are called. Yes, what a beautiful picture we can find from these events in Exodus of the unchanging, faithful nature of God. So we hope that this has been helpful for you today. If you don't have the book, Step Into Scripture, we encourage you to pick that up. It's available on Amazon and it can accompany your Bible reading plan. It can't replace it. It's not Cliff Notes. Read the Bible, read Step Into Scripture and join us here weekly and we'll keep moving chronologically through the Bible in 2024. Thanks for being with us. Hello, listener. Thank you for tuning into a Renew.org podcast. We want to invite you to join us this April in Indianapolis for our 2024 gathering, Courageous Renewal. We will feature speakers such as Anthony Walker, Tina Wilson, Bobby Harrington, Jonathan Storman, and so much more. Secure your spot now at Renew.org slash events. That is Renew.org slash events. Hope to see you there.